Good morning. Well, turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Luke's Gospel. Luke's, Luke's Gospel. <clears throat> we are going to take a break from the book of Genesis while we spend the next three weeks looking into Luke's Gospel, a short three-week series in Luke's Gospel, letting letting it prepare our hearts and our minds to celebrate Christmas this morning, or Christmas this year. So Luke's gospel is where we're going to be. And the message of Christmas is good news to a world that is marked by violence. A world that's marked by violence and oppression. And it's a message that our culture has kind of lost its grip on. Um, it's lost its grip on it because the Christmas message is swallowed up to a large extent by the commercialization of Christmas. It has become Christmas, the message of Christmas has become in our culture a secular festival of lights. It has become, it has become a time of family gatherings. It's become a season of generosity to those closest to us and those in greatest need. And those things are all fine and good. Of course, those are fine and good. And they're congruent with the origins of the Christmas celebration. But the true message of Christmas is far more glorious than in any of those things. The true message of Christmas is that in Christ, God has come to rescue and redeem humanity and the creation itself. Now I say that, and you sit there with your arms folded across your chest, and you think, well, that's very nice. Have you really stopped and thought about what I just said? That in Christ, God has come to rescue and redeem humanity and the creation itself. Rescue. Rescue from what? Death. Redeem from what? Bondage. Humanity needs both of those things? Yeah. The creation needs both of those things? Yeah. And this is what God's doing in the incarnation. This is what's happening at Christmas. You see, this is why it's far more glorious the true light, what the message of Christmas is, the true light has dawned and it will expel all of, the, all of the darkness of the world. All of the sin, all of the evil, all of the suffering will be expelled. How? By one who will absorb it himself. He will bring ultimate peace by absorbing ultimate evil. And he will extend free grace as a gift to anyone who will receive him. This is the true message of Christmas. And anybody who slows down long enough to actually consider it will be overwhelmed by the implications of it. It's what led, I think I've told you this before, it's what led one French poet who was much more known for his wine consumption than his church attendance to write one of the all-time famous Christmas hymns. He was challenged by his um, local parish priest to read the gospel accounts of Christ's birth, to meditate upon them, and then put pen to paper. He's, the priest said, meditate upon these, read them, put pen to paper and show me what you got. And so he did. He put pen to paper. You know what he came out with? Oh, holy night. The stars are shining brightly. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world... In sin, can't write that anymore, in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. See, he, when he reads the gospel accounts, by the way, May all winos have such a good understanding of the gospel. 
Every wino I meet doesn't have anything like this. May all of them come to this appreciation of the gospel message. My goodness. He, he puts pen to paper and he comes up with, oh, holy night. And you know, you know the hymn. It goes on and it talks about how the, the king was laid in a manger. But in the back end of the song, the poet writes what I think are the best words. He writes, behold your king. Before him lowly bend. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chain shall he break. For the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Do you know how glorious those words are? All oppression. You see, that doesn't really ring true to us because we're Americans and we typically think we're free. But that, those words, all oppression shall cease. He shall break all the chains. That's glorious language. The real message of Christmas is with the birth of this child, God's redemptive plan of rescuing and redeeming humanity and the creation itself will be realized. There's this bright light at the end of this dark tunnel that humanity has been in ever since the fall of Adam and Eve that we've been looking at in the book of Genesis. Ever since that, humanity has been in this long, dark tunnel trying to find its way out, but it can't. It can't do it on its own. Humanity cannot save itself. It can't find itself to the light of the, to the light of the true light of the world. And so Christ comes. He's born and he's the light of the long end of the tunnel. This is glorious news. And like I said, it's good news for the entire world. And so it's what we're going to look at this morning and for the following two Sundays. We're going to look at the account of Jesus' birth as told by Luke's gospel and let it prepare our hearts and minds to worship Christ on Christmas. So turn in your uh, gospel, Luke, you're there. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look at one of the most famous passages of Scripture. And the challenge for you today is going to be this, not to turn off your brain. That's going to be the challenge for you this morning because you have probably read this account, oh, I don't know, every year. If you've been a Christian, for as long as you've been a Christian, you've read this account every year at Christmas. And so the challenge is not to turn off your brain. I want you to look at it with fresh eyes. And what I want you to look for is I want you to look for how Mary responds to the message of Christmas. And let her response shape your response as we enter into the Christmas season, okay? So Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse uh, 26. And what we'll do, in case you're a note taker, is I'm just going to read the text, I'll point out a couple things, and then we're going to come back and we're going to see how Mary responds, and then we're going to see how does her response point the way forward for our response. So, verse 26. In the sixth month, that's the sixth month of uh, her cousin Elizabeth's pregnancy that Mary doesn't know about, by the way. She doesn't know uh, she's her, her cousin is uh, pregnant at this point. But in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So Luke tells us that the Lord sends a, uh, this angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, a small little village, maybe, 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 maybe 200 people, uh, tops 300 people. And God sends the angel there specifically to see Mary, who is betrothed and is pledged to be married to Joseph. And Mary is a virgin. Now, you probably know, but in case you don't, Mary's a very young girl. Uh, anywhere from 12 to 15 years of age. Most girls in that culture were betrothed right after puberty. So she's 12, 13, 14, no more than 15 years of age. And she's pledged to be married to Joseph, who, by the way, is also um, pretty young. I mean, he, he may be just a little bit older than she is, so maybe 15 
maybe 16. And these two grew up in a small little village together. And they, their families knew each other. You guys know, if you're from a small community, um, you know everything about every other family in that small community. It, you know the ins and outs. These kids, they probably grew up playing together. And the way it worked is Hebrew parents arranged the marriages of their sons and daughters. And we talked about this last week. So I'm not going to rehash it. But but they worked out every little detail. Often, And once the decision was made to pursue a match, the fathers, they discussed, again, every little detail. And once they arranged every little detail, they prepared a legal contract. Vows were made. Tokens were exchanged. And then the families, they got together and they celebrated. And at the conclusion of this ceremony, the couple, so Mary and Joseph, they entered into the betrothal period, which could be, it could be as short as a month or two, or uh, it could be as long as a year. But that betrothal period, in that betrothal period, they were, um, for all purposes, they were legally married. They were husband and wife in every respect, except for they were to live with their family still, and they were to refrain from sex. Those were the two exceptions. But they were legally married at this point. And therefore, if something were to happen um, that they felt like they couldn't stay married, they would have to go through the legal process of divorce, which was highly unusual in that day. So at this point, Mary is betrothed. And she is feeling, no doubt, how all engaged women feel. Are you a woman who's been engaged before? Do you remember how you felt? Do you remember the joy, hopefully, the joy? If there wasn't joy, don't nudge your husband. Um, in the betrothal period, in the engagement period, usually you can, you can tell a woman is just over the moon excited. She's glowing. She's happy. Everything she's thinking about, everything in her mind is pointed at what? The wedding day. Everything, all her thoughts go towards that day. You're making plans, you're anticipating the day. And this is what Mary's doing. She is over the moon excited, young girl, over the moon excited. She's preparing her life, thinking about the day that her and Joseph are going to get to be husband and wife in every sense. And they're getting so close to that day. And Gabriel shows up. The Lord sends Gabriel. To Mary. And look at what he tells her, because what he tells her completely rocks her world, and she would not have been oh so excited about it. We read this account, and we read back into it what we think we know, and we think, well, Mary must have been overjoyed. Do you like having all of your plants turned on their, completely flipped upside down overnight? Do you love that when that happens to you? No. You don't. I don't. I hate it when my plans are flipped upside down and rearranged. And that's exactly what happens to Mary. All of her plans are completely flipped upside down and rearranged. And when it first happens, I don't think she's overjoyed by it. So look at what the angel comes to it, because it completely rocks her world. Look at verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How? (laughs) There's this younger, How will this be? Since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High 
will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So Gabriel shares this just life-altering, life-shattering news. That though she's a virgin, she's going to conceive. And she's going to bear a son. And look at what else he tells her. He tells her that her son's character will be holy. He says in verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. So his character, now think about this, his character is holiness which is only God's character. Only God has perfect holy character. So what the angel has told her is that this is holiness personified. This is God in the flesh. This is His character is holy. But then Gabriel goes on and says, the child's vocation will be that of a king. He's going to be a king. Look at verse 32 and 33. Gabriel says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So the Davidic promise is going to be realized in her son. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. He'll reign over the house of Israel forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So this child born to Mary is the true king is what Gabriel's saying. He's the rightful king. He's King David's greater son. He's the one that Israel has been longing for. And Gabriel says his kingdom will endure and it will continue to expand. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. It'll continue to endure and expand as more and more people come under his loving kingship. So his character is holy. His vocation will be a king and his purpose will be to save. Look at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive... In your, in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And God chooses the name of this son, Jesus. And as Jesus, as you may or may not know, is the Greek form of, uh, the name Joshua. And Joshua means Yahweh the Lord, Yahweh saves. Which is why in Matthew's account, when the angel is speaking to Joseph, he says concerning this child, You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Now look at what Gabriel has told her right here. The king of the universe is given the name Savior, which means all of his holiness, all of his deity, and all of his power stand in the service of his saving mercy. That's remarkable. That's really remarkable. Uh, we some, we have a saying in our culture that absolute power corrupts. Not true. Not if the character is infinite holiness. Then the absolute power will stand in the service of saving mercy. And that's exactly what Gabriel has described to her about her soon-to-be son. This child born to you, he will be the king of the universe. He will be this holy, divine, shalom-bringing, saving king. This is the good news. This is the startling news that's given to Mary. It is shocking to say the least. And look at her response. Look at verse 38. The famous response. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Amazing. (laughs) Just amazing, she says this. And Luke, he includes this, no doubt because of the announcement of the, the birth of Christ, but also he includes this because of Mary's response. He wants us to see Mary's response as a pattern for how one should respond to the message of Christmas. So how does Mary respond? Let me give them to you. I'm going to give you three ways. 
Three ways, and then we'll work our way through them. How does Mary respond to the message of Christmas? Here's the first way. Note this down. She considers it carefully. She considers the message carefully. She surrenders. Secondly, she surrenders completely. So she considers the message carefully. She surrenders completely. And then thirdly, what we'll see is she sings joyfully. She sings joyfully. So first one, how does she respond to it? She considers carefully. Her mind is fully engaged when she responds to this message. See, what happens is a, a, a lot of people will come to this text and they will, a lot of people in our culture, they'll come to this text and they'll engage in what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, which is basically the heart attitude that says something along the lines of, we modern people are so intelligent and sophisticated, while people of previous generation were essentially just uh, gullible and rubes. And they were easily duped. And, and actually, they'll, that chronological, chronological snobbery, that heart attitude, they'll carry that over to people of today who believe in, his, in the historic Christian faith. And they'll say something along the lines to people who believe in the historic Christian faith, well, you guys are just kind of gullible. You guys have blind faith. You don't really take the time to consider the alternatives. Well, let me tell you something. Nobody could say that about Mary. An angel appears to her, and Luke doesn't tell us that she was overjoyed by this news. Luke doesn't tell us that Mary says, oh, how wonderful. I've been waiting for an angel my entire life to speak to me. I've been waiting for this to happen. We don't actually read anything of the sort. We read, rather, quite the opposite. Look again at verse 29. What does the text tell us? She was greatly troubled. The text tells us she was, Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern If you're in the ESV, it'll say discern. If you're in the NIV, it'll say wondered. She tried to discern or she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. So what is Mary doing when she hears the Christmas message? She's thinking rationally about it. She's not just readily accepting it. She's thinking rationally about it. The word discern in the ESV or wondered in the the, uh, NIV, it's a Greek word which means to make a settlement of accounts. Uh, to reason. It's an accounting word, which means she's scrutinizing this. It means to be weighing things, to be adding things up. Let me ask you something. How closely do you scrutinize your credit card bill when it comes? Do you pour over it? Every month, my wife, she tries to hide the credit card bill from me because we own horses. So... I, I take my glasses, I lift them up, and I say, what in the world? We spent this on that, this. I highlight them. Get a little marker out, the little, little yellow marker, and I highlight them, and I say, hey, honey, we need to talk. What am I doing? Well, I'm scrutinizing, and I'm carefully, I'm carefully considering, I'm discerning where my money went. And I'm thinking very rationally about it. That's exactly the word that Luke uses. Mary is scrutinizing this. She's thinking this. She's adding up. She's weighing all of it. She's trying to make this this message make sense. So she's thinking clearly, rationally, and with good reason. And of course, she was troubled, as any rational person would be, with an appearance of an angel. She would, she, she's reacting just as you would react if you thought you saw an angel. This angel, she's thinking, am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing? Am I hallucinating? How much eggnog did I drink last night? Uh, she's thinking rationally. What in the world is going on here? This is what, this is greatly troubled. Trying to discern. She doesn't immediately accept the message. She's processing. So she thinks rationally about the message, but she also thinks skeptically about her own skepticism. Her initial reaction was one of skepticism. The first time she heard the gospel message, the message of Christmas, she says, how can that, how can this be? 
You know what that is? That's a really polite way of saying, what? What? I'm going to conceive without having sex. I'm going to conceive and bear forth a child. That's impossible. That's what she's saying. She said, huh? That's impossible. Why would she say that? Here's the reason why. Because she had been trained. But now listen. Because she had been trained by her culture to not believe that God could become a human being. Remember, the Jews, they wouldn't even pronounce the holy name of God. So everything in her culture, everything in her culture, mitigated it against the idea that God could become a man. Which means Mary is not all that different from us. In our culture, you and I have been trained by our culture ever since elementary school to not believe in the supernatural. We've been trained in philosophical naturalism. The easiest way to think about naturalism is there's nothing behind, before, or beyond nature. That's the easiest way to think about it. We've been trained. We have been steeped in that. We've been trained in it from our, in our culture. So everything in our culture mitigates against the idea that God could become a man. So Mary finds this message incredibly hard to believe. But note, she responds And she responds with skepticism. But the question of how will this be isn't... Now, here's the key. This question of how will this be isn't the question of a closed mind. It's a question of an open mind. Which means she doesn't stop the conversation. Do you see that? Because she could have stopped the conversation really, really easily. She could have, but she doesn't. She, it's a question of an own mind. She, she, which means she examine, she examines her own skepticism. She's skeptical about her own skepticism. She pulls out her skepticism and says, do I really believe everything that my culture has taught me? Do I really believe everything my culture has taught me? Instead of living with a closed mind regarding this, maybe I ought to reproach it with an open mind. Now listen, in our culture, One of the very best things you can do, a really healthy process for you, is to examine why you might be skeptical regarding the supernatural. It might be a really healthy process for you to say, do I really believe everything my culture has taught me? It might be a really healthy process for you to say, to look out into the world and say, do I really believe all of this is just an accident and I'm just a grown-up germ? Do I deep down in my soul really believe that all of this, the entire creation, is just one big accident and I'm just a grown-up germ? Because honestly, I really don't believe that. Which means that there is a God. And if there is a God, and he created all of this, could that God also intervene into his creation in order to rescue it? Now you see, our barriers are different but the, the barriers Mary faced against belief in the Christmas message were every bit as real and as big as the barriers you may be facing. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, and every Sunday I know there are people who are non-Christians, her, her barriers to belief are every bit as big as your barriers as you contemplate the Christ, Christmas message. But note, if you're someone here who's a non-Christian, note the path to faith. She doubted. Is that an okay thing to do? Yeah. She used her reason. Is that an okay thing to do? Yeah. She used her intellect. She asked questions. And listen, friend, that's the path to faith. This is not blind faith on Mary's part. And Mary's not a rube. And if you're gonna, if you and I are gonna have genuine faith, if the Christmas message is going to make any difference in our lives, we have to journey down the same path. We shouldn't just readily accept it. 
Because remember what I said the true message of Christmas is. That in Christ, God has come to rescue and redeem humanity and the creation itself. You should not just accept that at point value. You should question it. You should use your intellect. You should think about it. You should wrestle over it. You should meditate upon it and say, do I really believe that? That is actually the path to faith. To doubt, to question, to wrestle, to reason, to use your intellect, and continue to, to pursue all of it with an open mind. That's exactly what Mary does. She responds to the message of, of Christmas by considering it carefully. Her mind is fully engaged. But then, secondly, what we see here is she surrenders completely. Her will is fully released. So first, she considers it carefully. Her mind is fully engaged. Second, she surrenders completely. Her will is fully released. Look at the most famous line in the account, verse 38. Look what Mary says. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now note what she's not saying. She's not saying it's so clear now. <laughs> because it wasn't clear yet. She's been told she's going to conceive without having sex with a man. It's not clear yet. She's not saying it's so clear now. I get it. Nor is she saying, I love this plan. And I'm so excited to be a part of it. That's not what she's saying either. What she's saying is, even though it doesn't all make sense to me right now, I will pursue this. And I will trust you. Mary surrendered her will to God, even though she knew it was going to cost her. She knows she lives in a small village and people aren't stupid. They can do math. Hey, married on that day... Baby, on that day, hey, wait a second. None of this adds up. She knows that that, that's going to happen. She knows Joseph wasn't going to believe her. When she goes and tells Joseph this news, she knows Joseph isn't going to believe her. She knew that her friends and her community wouldn't believe her. Which means her reputation was going to be shot. She knew everybody in her little community would think that either she had sex with Joseph before marriage or she committed adultery on Joseph. And she knew that this son to be born to her would be ridiculed and would be called a bastard, which is exactly what happened in John chapter 8. And how does she respond? I am the Lord's servant. (laughs) Let it... Let it be to me according to your word. She says, whatever may come, I will accept it. And I'm going to accept it by trusting you. Now listen, anybody who wants to become a Christian essentially must do the same thing. Which means this is not cheap grace. Anybody who wants to become a Christian must essentially do the same thing. Because becoming a Christian is not a program to help you self-actualize. That's not what Christianity is about. Nor is it to help you live your best life now. No matter what you may hear from shiny TV preachers with big old megawatt smiles. It's not actually to help you live your best life now. Nor is Christianity a vendor service providing you spiritual goods so long as it meets your needs at an affordable cost. No, 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 no. Christian faith, it's not a negotiation, which is a lot of times what we think. Well, I'm just going to hagger, digger with the Lord a little bit here. No, 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 no. It's not a negotiation. It's a surrender of your will. Is this getting too heavy? got really quiet in here. It's not a negotiation. It's a surrender of your will, just as Mary did here. But now here's the key. You're surrendering yourself to the king of the universe, who you can trust completely. Why? Well, because what we read here, his character is infinite holiness, which means anything he does 
is going to be good for you in the long run. It may not look like it in the short term. But in the long run, it's going to be good for you. So you're not negotiating with this. You're, you're not negotiating with the king of the universe. You're surrendering your will to him, but you can trust him completely because he's the king of the universe and he has all power and wisdom and it's used in service. Saving, it's used in the service of his saving mercy on your behalf. So, look at how Mary responds to the message of Christmas. She considers it carefully. Her mind is fully engaged. She surrenders completely. Her will is fully released. And then lastly, she sings joyfully. Her heart is fully captivated. Well, where do I get that in this passage? I don't. Uh, it's actually in the next scene where Mary goes and visits her, uh, visits her relative, Elizabeth. We'll look at it next week. But when she does, she bursts into praise that she says has captured her whole heart. Look at what she says. Verse 46. We're going to jump into it and then we'll spend a lot more time on it next week. Mary says, verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. My soul and the spirit. Uh, in the soul and the spirit in the Bible are not two separate things. This is parallelism. It's a literary device for making an emphatic point. And so what Mary's saying is, this message of this child and who he is and what he will do, it has moved me to the very depths of my being. And I'm fully alive. My heart is fully captivated. Her, her mind is engaged, her will is surrendered, and her heart is now captivated. And this is the way Christian faith always moves in a person's life. It moves from mental assent to a surrendered will to a heart that's filled with joy. It's filled with joy, just like a young child's heart on Christmas morning when they've received a gift. And one of the marks of someone who's really understands the gospel at a heart level, not just mental assent, not just seeing the Lord as uh, the judge, but as seeing him as the savior, someone who really understands the gospel at a heart level, one of the marks of it is a perennial note of joy. Now, that doesn't mean life will never get difficult. And it doesn't mean you won't face hard things because you will. But underneath of it, there will be a perennial note of joy because they know that they've received a gift, the gift of grace that they could have never earned and they didn't deserve. And this is why Mary, in verse 49, go ahead and look at it. This is why she sings, He who is mighty has done great things for others. No, that's not what she says. He who is mighty has done great things for me. That's the perennial note of joy that will be in the heart of every single Christian. They will say, oh my. Yes, I'm facing hard things right now. Yes, I'm walking through what I think is hell on earth. Yes, this is really hard. But underneath that will be this perennial note of joy that he who is mighty has done great things for me. Now look at the message of Christmas. Look at Mary's response to the message of Christmas. She considers it carefully. Her mind is fully engaged. Second, she surrenders completely. Her will is fully released. Third, she sings joyfully. Her heart is fully captivated. Well, that's Mary. What about you? How can we, like Mary, not just hear the Christmas message, but actually be transformed by it? How can we not just hear the Christmas message? Because my hunch is, if you're a Christian, you've heard the Christmas message again and again and again. But how can you hear it, and not just hear it, but actually be transformed by it? Let me give you three ways, and I'll move quickly because I'm running out of time. Here's the first one. Let me give you three ways. Let your mind embrace the evidence. Let your mind embrace the evidence. Many people will read this account, and they'll say, well, Mary had an angelic announcement. Of course she's going to believe of course she's going to believe. Oh, my friend. And they'll use that as a scapegoat for saying, well, I, I didn't have an angelic announcement, therefore I'm not going to believe. My friend, that's lazy. Because don't you see, you have so much more than Mary had. You have so much more than Mary. You don't just have an announcement from an angel. You have a life lived. You have the complete life. You don't just get a snapshot of it from an angel. 
You have the complete life lived. You have the complete evidence of a life lived because this child promised to marry grew to become a man who both his friends and his enemies, both his friends and his enemies said that he was the son of God. In John chapter 6, you don't need to turn there, but Peter says to Jesus, we have believed and come to know, and note just that alone, the process of faith there, we have believed and come to know. We have believed and come to know that you're the Holy One of God. At the cross, a Roman soldier who executed Jesus stood by as Jesus died. He looked upon him and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now listen, you know what that means? Unlike Mary, you have the full story. We can read the vivid narratives. We can read the apostolic witness. We can witness 2,000 years of church history. We can see his love for humanity. We can feel the weight of his teaching. So my friend, if you're here this morning or if you're listening or watching, let your mind embrace the evidence. Approach the message of Christmas with an open mind. Pull out your skepticism. Be skeptical of your skepticism. Pull it out and say, do I really believe everything I've been taught by my culture? Or maybe, just maybe, should I approach the message of Christmas and the incarnation of Christ with an open mind and let my mind actually embrace the evidence? So if you're listening, let your mind embrace the evidence. This baby promised to marry, born in a stable, truly was God in the flesh. He came all the way down and was placed in a cradle and then went to the cross and absorbed, was plunged into unfathomable darkness at the cross so that he could bring the light of eternity to you. So let your mind embrace the evidence. Secondly, let your soul be caught up in the wonder of it all. Let your soul be caught up in the wonder of it. How do you be transformed by it? Let your mind embrace the evidence, but then let your soul actually be caught up in the wonder of it all. Um, do you guys remember the name J.I. Packer? Some of you guys do. Uh, J.I. Packer is with the Lord now, very sadly. Uh, but in his, one of his books, he writes this about the incarnation, and it's just classic. He says, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us, lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really Now listen, the really staggering claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man, that the second person of the Godhead became the second man, determining human destiny, and that he took humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. Here, he goes on, are two mysteries for the price of one. The plurality of persons within the unity of the Godhead and the union of Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. It is here, in the thing that happened at the first Christmas, that the most profoundest and most, and the, and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The word became flesh. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. And he goes on, he says, the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon. Hope of peace with God. Hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It is the, it is the most wonderful message 
that the world has ever heard. It is the most wonderful message that the world will ever hear. (sighs) Isn't that glorious? Now listen, maybe you came here this morning and you're unsure about Christianity. Okay, fine, I get that. I completely get that. But can you at least acknowledge that deep in your soul, you want it to be true? You want someone to intervene and put an end to all the evil and the suffering that humanity has caused. You want someone to intervene and to fully set the world right. You want to maybe know God and more than that, to be fully known by God. If you can at least acknowledge that, start right there. Just start right there and at least acknowledge that and be willing to pull out the rest of your skepticism. Because with the birth of this child promised to Mary, God has intervened. And you can be fully known and fully loved. So start right there and then stick with us as we move through this Christmas message and this Christmas series. And if you're already a Christian, then be caught up in the wonder of it all over again. Because as Packer says, the most staggering claim of the Christian faith is that Christ became man. The second person of the Godhead took on human flesh and lived as one of us in order to die for us and to give us his grace as a gift. Let that story that God became one of us to rescue and redeem us, fill you with joy and with wonder this Christmas season. So how can we uh, not just hear the Christmas message, but be transformed by it? First, let your mind down on the evidence. Let your mind embrace the evidence, not just an angelic announcement, but the full evidence of a life lived. Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension. So let your mind down on the evidence. But then secondly, let your soul be caught up in the wonder of it all. It is the true story of God setting the world right, starting with the people within it. And then lastly, let your heart be stirred by the Lord's love. Let your heart be stirred by the Lord's love. In Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when he's reflecting on Christ's love, he says, he says, but you know, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. So that by his poverty, you might become rich. Which means his grace, let me say it again, his grace is given to you as a gift born out of his love. Again, just like the gifts you give your kids on Christmas morning. It's just like that. It's born out of his love. And you know what happens when you really take time to think this through and meditate on the Lord's love for you and let your heart be stirred by it? It'll it'll absolutely transform you. Why? Will it enable you to live gratefully? It will actually enable you to live gratefully, knowing that your relationship with the Lord is based in His grace, not your merit. So it's based in His grace, uh, which is rooted in his love. So it'll enable you to live gratefully. But here's the second thing it'll enable you to do. It'll enable you to live selflessly. The Christmas spirit, which our world desperately tries to manufacture each time this, this year, this time each year, we drink, a, we wrap a thousand gifts, we drink a bunch of eggnog, we try to pretend to be happy. That, that whole idea, the Christmas spirit, that which we try desperately to manufacture, that'll actually be the mark of a genuine Christian all the year round. Listen to these words. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob. All God's people said. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor. Spending and being spent to enrich their fellow human beings, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others in whatever way there seems need. There are not as many who show this spirit as there should be. If God in his mercy revives us, one of the things he will do will be to work more of his spirit 
in our hearts and our minds. Amen to that. You want the message of Christmas to transform your life? Then come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you really want the message of Christmas to transform your life, come under the message, come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Welcome Him into your life as Mary did and receive His grace as a gift this Christmas. And then you come to the Lord's table. You come to the Lord's table, His the communion table, where because of what Christ has done on your behalf, you can come to the Lord's table knowing that you're fully welcomed. Knowing that you're fully known despite all of your flaws and knowing that you're fully loved because in Christ you are completely loved. Let's pray. Father, as we hold these elements in our hands, we are reminded as we think about Christmas that you came all the way down. You left your Father's throne above, unwillingly entered into human history, and was placed in a cradle, and then later hung on a cross where your body was beaten and split open, and your blood was spilt in order to forgive us, in order to cleanse us, to make a way for fallen humanity, rebellious, sinful people to come into your presence and not just come into your presence in a sense of cowering, but to come into your presence knowing that we are completely loved. And Lord, we know now that you have received a crown. Cradle to the cross, to the crown, all of it done with your people in mind, with us in mind. And so as as we come to your table this morning, Lord, we rejoice in the person of Christ. We thank you that you have made a way. We thank you that your love compelled you To die for sinful humanity, Lord. So that you would live fully fully unto the plans of God to rescue and redeem us. And we look forward to the day, Lord, as we, we do look back, but we look forward as well. We look forward to the day that we will stand in your presence. We will see you and we will look upon your face and we will look into your eyes. And we will celebrate all that you have done as we stand upon a renewed creation. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.